Well, welcome. Welcome. It's good to be together here for worship at Lincoln Square Presbyterian Church. I want to welcome those of gathering in person, but also welcome who are joining us online to worship and uh, be reminded that this is a season in which we are in particular uh, pressed upon this truth that the Spirit of God is what unites us to one another in Christ. And uh, we're thankful when we can gather together, but the truth of the Spirit is that He unites us to Christ and to one another by His grace. And so we give thanks. We give thanks to the one who's created us and redeemed us by the Spirit uh, that we come and worship. So we'll do that now, and it's to take a moment to remind you that I invite you to give to the work of the church. Uh, also highlight the Benevolence Fund, that this is a fund that the church can use to support members or neighbors who have need. And so just to highlight that, so you can give to the work of the church, but also if you know of needs that you have or others have, please let the deacons know or the pastors know. We want to be a resource to um, so our church community in our neighborhood. We'll let's take a moment of quiet to prepare ourselves to come before God and worship. Our call to worship is from Psalm 23, and even though we can't sing together, let's stand together since there is a responsive part. shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, gracious Father, the God of all comfort and mercy, the Lord who sustains us by your spirit and speaks to us through your word, your life-giving word. Lord, we come to you 
however weak and frail, needing to hear your word, needing to be filled and renewed by your spirit through the gathering of your church and through your people. Lord, we come to you weak and frail. Lord, we need your spirit. Gracious Father, we recognize this week that we are shocked and even overwhelmed by what we saw in Beirut and Lebanon. Lord, we grieve with the city of Beirut and with the nation of Lebanon, with the loss of life, with the mass destruction that they saw to their capital city. Lord, we pray for that city. We pray for the people there. Lord, we ask that you would be with them, that you would sustain them, that you would provide for them in their time of need. Lord, we ask that you would bring justice and hear their voices and cries for justice in the midst of their own country, in the midst of the apathy from their leaders. Lord, however, we also recognize in our own nation, in our own city, the need for justice. Lord God, we pray that you would hear our prayers, that you would be working in and through uh, our leaders to bring about equality, to bring about renewed uh, systems that honor and respect and show dignity to all people, to those who bear your image. Gracious Father, we pray that we would be those who are moved to speak, uh, to speak for righteousness and justice for your sake. Lord, we also recognize that the virus continues to impact so many families, so many people. Lord, we, we grieve the loss of tens of thousands of our own citizens here in the United States. Lord, we grieve the losses of friends and loved ones and, and those who we may know who have lost loved ones, who have been affected with this virus. Lord, we, we ask that you would be at work, that you would bring relief, that you would heal those who have been afflicted, that you would bring uh, and comfort to those who have lost loved ones. Lord, we pray that you would confront our hearts that are filled with pride and prejudice that resides. Lord, we pray that you would give us generosity and move us towards those in need. Lord, open our hearts that we do not grow numb to the violence that we see around us, but rather that we would be moved and grieve and lament with our brothers and sisters. God, we ask that you would hide us in Jesus Christ because we need you more than ever. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we gather together with God and to continue to worshiping him, we recognize that we are those in need of confessing our sins, both privately and corporately, and we're going to do that now, first publicly together and then privately. Let us pray. Almighty God, you watch over the weary with loving kindness. You have promised that in Christ you will faithfully bring forth justice, never breaking a bruised reed and never stuffing, snuffing out a faintly burning wick. Gracious and gentle Father, we confess to you that we sometimes grow weary of struggling against the evils in this world. We feel powerless to change the injustice around us and the injustice within our own hearts. Grant us rest and give us courage to trust in you and not despair. 
Amen. Let us continue praying. Gracious Father, you assure us that all who confess your Son, Jesus Christ, as crucified and risen, that they have received forgiveness and eternal life in Christ Jesus and by the power of his Spirit. Amen. Amen. Eighty-five, verses 8 through 13. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The New Testament lesson is from Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, 
bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be uh, worshiping with you, and I'm thankful for a chance to to look at God's Word together. Uh, We're going to continue looking at the Gospel of John, as we've been doing all summer. And a few Sundays ago, I mentioned that one way to understand or organize the first half of John's Gospel is through seeing the seven signs or seven wonders that Christ accomplishes. In chapter 2, he turns water to wine, the wedding in Cana. In chapter 4, Jesus heals the child of an important official. The official's son is very ill, and just by his word, Jesus restores the child. And in chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who had been for 38 years unable to walk or stand. Again, just by his word, Jesus is able to restore this man that he can stand and walk. And I mention that because today's passage is the fourth sign of the seven in which we'll see Jesus feed 5,000. He provides food for a large crowd out in the wilderness. Seven signs, seven wonders performed by Jesus, and all of these signs, they connect to the seven days of creation, telling us that the God who by his word brought forth this good world, that word is now in flesh and is at work again amongst his people and amongst his creation to bring restoration and renewal to places that are broken. So let's look at our passage and see how we see God at work and revealed in Christ. This is chapter 6, verse 1 through 15. You can follow along as I read or just, just listen. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered Jesus, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. 
And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we we pray and ask, as we have already, that your spirit would be here. Lord, we acknowledge that you are the one who has called us to come and to worship, and so we come to the one who has made us and the one who has redeemed us in Christ, and we come humbly asking that you would be at work in us, to encourage us, to restore us, to forgive us, to help us to walk in your ways. So Lord, please meet us by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage, I want us first to kind of enter into the narrative, enter into the story, and then second, we'll make a couple observations from it. You might have noticed that John gives a lot of detail in this passage, detail about the setting, the time of the year, the people engaged, and all these details are there to help us enter into the scene, to help us to to imagine it, to even identify with the events or those involved. And the details start with the mention of the location. Jesus went away to the other side of the sea. Now this side, this is an area of wilderness. It was an area not close to many towns or villages. That Jesus was seeking solitude, a place of retreat with his disciples. But this plan of quiet is interrupted. A large crowd has followed him. They've witnessed the signs that he was doing, and they've come with their own needs, or they come to see what's going to happen next. And so we are invited to arrive here in Galilee on a hill on the north side of the sea in a wilderness area with thousands of curious people. And we move from the setting to the wondrous sign through Jesus asking a question. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Such a basic and fundamental question, right? Where can we get bread so people can eat? This sign of feeding 5,000 is in all four of the Gospels. In Mark's account, we're told that the crowd, along with traveling into this wilderness area, they spent the day listening to Jesus. And so this out-of-the-way location and the length of time all compiled together about this concern for food. They are hungry. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? The question is directed to Philip, and he receives Jesus' question. He looks at the hungry crowd of thousands, and I can imagine that Philip does some quick math in his head, right? 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to each of them get a little bit. A denarii, a day's wage, even if somehow we had 200 denarii, as one Bible translates, eight months of salary, eight months of wages, even then, with all that money, there would barely be enough for a bite for each person. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Did you notice that Jesus asked the question, but John tells us that he already knows what he's going to do? So why does he ask this question of Philip. 
And it reminds us of earlier in the Gospel of John, that maybe you recall, that Jesus asked a question to the man who had been unable to walk for 38 years. Before healing that man, Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And it reminds us that questions have power. Power to open us up, power to invite us to speak our experience, our desires, our feelings, power to bring our inner life out. And maybe you can think even now in your life or in the past, someone that you trusted who asked you a question, how are you, or what do you think we should do? And how simple questions such as this invite you to share what's inside of you, even what's hidden. And when Philip hears Jesus' question, what what comes out? He's overwhelmed, right? He's overwhelmed by what's before him. Philip shares his fears. He shares the impossibility of the request. Maybe you can relate to the idea of being asked to do something that seems like a certain failure. How would I possibly make it through this? His answer cites the overwhelming need and his limited resources. Thousands are gathered. How could we ever address such a situation? Philip offers his calculations of the need versus what resources he could possibly imagine. Well, after we hear from Philip, another disciple steps into the scene, Andrew, and we're told somehow that Andrew gets to know this unnamed boy who has food with him. He introduces him to Jesus. I like this. Andrew draws attention to this boy's lunch, most likely. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? You see, both Andrew and Philip, they might have different ways of seeing it arriving there, but both feel the insufficiency of the resources, the overwhelming need. And neither one of them knows really what to do, but Andrew brings the boy to Jesus. And here, if we are picturing the scene in this exchange, you and I were invited to identify. Let's find our spot, right? Identify with Philip's calculations. Identify with Andrew's dismissal. What difference will this make? Identify with a boy who's offering his lunch, offering what he has. And identify that so often, if we're honest, we don't know what to do. That we feel insufficient. And the starting point of our passage tells us that it's always that we bring what we have, what there is, what is offered. And as Christians, we bring such things to the attention of Jesus. You never know what he's going to do with it. You know, we recognize the problem, we recognize the need, the circumstances that are beyond our resources. But our passage encourages us to imagine bringing such things to Jesus. And in this offering, to have faith. Trust that Jesus will do something. Something beyond expectations, beyond what we have thought about, beyond our plans. Here, a boy's lunch, loaves and fishes, terribly inadequate, terribly inadequate for so many who were hungry. But it was enough for what the Lord's purpose was on that day. As we think about this contrast between our needs and our resources, I want to share a quote from a theologian, his name H. Richard Niebuhr, And this theologian says, the question of the church 
The question of the church is not how it can measure up to the expectations of society, nor what it must do to become a savior of civilization, but rather how the church can be true to itself, that is true to its head, Christ. You see, the church is called to love its neighbors as itself, called to proclaim the good news, called to be Christ's body here in the world. But the church must begin like this boy, like Andrew, like Philip, must begin always rooted in the identity of God's actions. We are the people gathered in and through Christ, offering what we have, trusting that he is the one who will do the work. And so before we can assume trying to reform our city, our society, before we make judgments or take action, the church has to undergo what one person says is a silence, a humility, a repentance and naming of our idols before the person and the work of Christ. Do you see this story? Maybe we're familiar with it, maybe it's new to us, but this story, the scene of thousands who are hungry, limited resources, tired out in the wilderness, The scene is not centered at any moment on the disciples taking care of everyone's needs. The story at no point is centered on the disciples' resources or their good plans. Rather, the scene is centered on people who are hungry gathered around Jesus with full acknowledgement that their need and hunger is greater than their resources. They and their need is before Jesus so that he can attend to them. He is at the center, receiving what is offered, even the need that seems so great. So there Jesus is giving directions. Have people sit down, he says. See how the story unfolds. In this grass field, we're told, a nice place to sit together. Mark's gospel tells us that of the thousands there, they broke into groups of 50 or 100. Then Jesus took the boys' lunch took what was offered and gave thanks. Jesus likely offered the traditional thanks from Psalm 97. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And after giving thanks, Jesus distributed the loaves and fish to those who were seated. They were distributed as much as wanted. You see that as much as they wanted. Philip was calculating. Philip was trying to figure out how much money was needed just for people to have a bite, a little bit. But here we read at the end of this meal that there is an abundance. They had as much as they wanted. They had eaten their fill. There was leftovers, we're told. And when the people see what has happened, when they see the sign that has been done, they conclude this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the scene that we're invited to enter into, to imagine. And I want us to take a couple of moments to see a couple observations. First, that Jesus recognizes the hunger and need of the people. Maybe that's obvious, right? You say, well, that's obvious. But we should make a moment to recognize that there is no dismissing of the people as irresponsible. How come you didn't bring your own food with you? There's no sense that it's somehow unimportant or irrelevant to his ministry. He does not dismiss the hunger and need of the group. 
but rather it's in this hunger and need that Jesus demonstrates his unique power and unique identity. I've mentioned Scott Erickson before. He's a liturgical artist. And one of the things that Scott Erickson does is that he reimagines the creation of religious icons. And maybe you can picture an icon. An icon, right, is a sacred image used for religious devotion. It is made to identify holiness, kind of to point out this is the, what the presence of God looks like. The most common icon is Christ, but there are icons of saints, of Old Testament prophets, of angels, of the four gospel writers. And in each case, there's normally a halo, a crown or a disc of light around the head of the one in the icon, the halo indicating, you know, here is holiness. Here is something unique, the presence of God. And I mention that because in Eric's recent post, his reimagining of an icon, he has an image of a simple wooden chair. A simple wooden chair. Four legs, but one of the chair legs is broken. And the broken leg is laying there on the ground next to the chair. And in the spot where the leg is broken, in the spot where it's missing from the chair, that is where he places the halo. If you can picture that, where the leg of the chair is snapped, that's where the halo is saying that this is the place of holiness. This is the place we should look for the presence of God. When the leg underneath of us is broken out from under us. Here in our weakness, this is where God reveals himself. And so therefore it makes sense that Jesus does not despise the hungry or turn them away as not part of his ministry, but rather it's in their hunger that Jesus reveals his power, invites the hungry actually to come and sit as his people to receive from him. The place we see, the place we encounter Jesus is in the place of impossibility. It's when you and I feel our insufficiencies, whether it's in our life or whether it's in the world around us. And it's in that moment that we can receive Jesus' food as a gift, not in exchange, some kind of barter that we do with him, but as a gift that he gives us from beginning to end by his grace. It's in this ministry to the hungry that it makes sense that we're told that it's the Passover. John puts that note in and helps us imagine that the people as they gather, they look around the wilderness and they see what Jesus is doing they are reminded of God as the liberator, the one who enters into our bondage. Just as God rescued the people out of slavery in Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, and fed them by the bread of heaven in the wilderness, so here is the one who is now feeding the people in the wilderness. Here is the one who speaks freedom and life into our places of bondage. No wonder they say, here is the prophet, the one greater than Moses. So Jesus recognizes the hunger and need and embraces it. And the second observation is for us to think about those who have gathered, those who are there with their hunger. Twenty-some years ago, there was an, an author named Wendell Berry who gave a speech about health care that would later be published titled, Health is Membership. Health is Membership. And part of the reason this lecture is remembered is because the author, because Barry defined health not simply as the absence of sickness, but as wholeness. 
a stark and powerful reminder in our culture that we often forget that the paradigm, this is helpful for us to think here, that the work, the gift of Jesus is not just simply taking away hunger, but rather inviting us to something new, to wholeness, to community, to provision, to the wonder and joy of a gift, to even to see a boy offer his lunch and generosity and see how God uses it. You were invited not simply to think of individuals you know, eating food, but a community that is formed. Health is wholeness, Barry said. But this wholeness, when and where it exists, is not simply the fruit of some intellectual exercise or human expertise. But what he writes is that it's fundamentally the result of the work of love. The work of love. Think about that for a moment, especially in the context of this scene that Jesus gathers hungry people around him. That human flourishing, human health, human provision is ultimately rooted not in human excess, human abundance, but in love. Seeing and welcoming another, giving a gift, not in exchange to another. You see it here in a world filled with iniquities, this scene that Jesus sets before us is a picture of his kingdom, a gathering of people who are hungry with need, gathered together, fed in abundance. Here is a community bound together by hunger, bound together by their insufficiency, not by their wisdom of knowing how to handle everything, but gathered around one who can tell them who they are, tell them how to see one another and their neighbors, tell them how to see their resources, tell them why they are there. And here is a vision of people gathered by Jesus, around Jesus, delighting in his provision, giving thanks for how he's addressed their physical and spiritual needs. So our passage invites us using hunger to the idea of being a member of his people, his family, his meal. Seven signs or seven mighty acts reveal Jesus as the eternal word in flesh. Here is God the one who's created all things, who is still at work restoring a broken world, a broken people. And you and I are invited to see and to believe, to let ourselves know our need and to turn to Christ with it. Jesus turns away from their desire to make him king because he knows that that's not the path that is before him at this moment. He knows that's not the path that God intends for him to walk in order to face the sin and evil of the world. We cannot make Jesus do what we think he ought. You see, in love, the eternal word that's taken on flesh, in love, the the living water takes on our thirst, in love, the sinless and holy one bears our shame, and in love, the bread of heaven knows our hunger. See, the love of Christ is the center of this community And it's the place of our hope and identity. It is the place that we turn with our impossibilities. So let us see and believe this day and turn with hope to the bread of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you are good, that you do not turn away from our vast needs or turn away from us when we don't know what to do. But rather, you invite us to come with our hunger Invite us to come with whatever we can offer. We pray, Lord, you'd meet us with your grace this day. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. As we uh, conclude our time of worship, would you please stand with me? Let us confess our faith with the universal church, with this ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, 
the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace now and forever. Amen. And go in peace. Thank you.